0: Hello, I'd like to welcome you to the latest episode of the TES Scotland podcast. I'm Emma C, TES Scotland senior reporter, and I'm joined today by Carrie Lindsay, who's the Director of Education and Children's Services in Fife, the third biggest education authority in Scotland, and the President of Directors Association, ADES. It's week two of the UK-wide school closures brought about by the coronavirus pandemic, so this month's podcast is being recorded under very different circumstances. And Carrie and I, we talking to each other via Zoom, the apologies if the sound quality is a bit dubious hi welcome to the TES Scotland podcast <laughs> so I can, kind of you. See, be here. I can kind of see where you are so tell me what like, where have you been working and
1: how has that been for you so I'm currently working at my kitchen table, and which is quite nice because I can look into the garden and it's spring. So I've got lots of daffodils. So it does feel quite nice to be able to do that. Um, I live in the house on my own. So it's good because I've got the run of the whole house. So I can leave one room and feel that I'm not working all the time. Um, so it's actually it's quite a good setup. I've got everything on my computer. I've got an iPad. I've got a phone as well. Um, and I can actually do everything that I need to do from
0: here. Right. Okay. Have you been sort of slipping into bad habits? Like I've got my granny cardigan on and
1: my and my slippers. And <laughs> I've got my slippers on, but that's only because I've got cream carpets in the rest of my house. So I always wear my slippers in my house. But no, I haven't. I haven't slipped into any of that. I don't sit with my duvet and my jammies on or anything like that. I get up. I've got the routines. I like to just be having my normal day. In fact, at the moment, it's a longer day than a normal day. But certainly um, so just. Keep keep on a routine going. Well tell
0: me a bit about that. So what kind of what kind of hours have you been having to work recently? Has it been pretty much nonstop?
1: Yeah, it's been, um, I suppose, much longer hours than I would normally work, and I think part of that is that we're really keen to get things up and running quickly to support our children and young people, so I didn't really care about the amount of hours that I was putting in, and then I did lots of my staff because we wanted to make sure that this is a really tricky time for our young people, and they're worried, they're anxious, they're concerned, and we wanted to make sure that what we were giving them to do at home, um, and also what we were giving them to do in our children's activity centres, we're going to allow them to have the best possible experience that they can over the next little while so i don't really mind putting in those extra hours to make sure that that's the case
0: yeah okay i mean how, how would you sum up the the last few weeks have you ever experienced anything like this before i mean i know that because you did have you did have, you know, sort of a pretty major incident last year, didn't you, with the fire at um, one of your secondary schools? But I mean, is, is this is this just in an entirely different
1: league? Yeah, it definitely is in a completely different league. Um, when I was a deputy head at Donny Bristol Primary in five many years ago. We lost half the school in a fire over a Christmas holiday period. And that was really stressful and uh, really difficult to deal with. And I think at that point, we didn't have as many processes and systems in place to support people. Um, And then, as you say, we had the Woodwell fire where uh, we had to find places for 1,600 children in a a week, um, which we managed to do, which was uh, quite a Herculean effort. And I've seen the same kind of Herculean effort um, happening over the last couple of weeks. But, But this is quite different. It's different because it's not a a, a short term action for one school or for a couple of schools. This is for all of our children. So this is for our 53,000, 54,000 children across the whole of Fife. Um, Some of them in a very vulnerable category, some of them who really need a lot of extra support every day. Um, And we're having to make sure that we're providing for those children as well as for the children who will be well supported at home, who will be given a lot of reassurance and who will continue their learning without much difficulty with the support from their teachers in the schools. But we have a range of um, different groups that we want to make sure are all safe and secure and the knowledge that they're, they're learning will continue and that they're they're safe for now um, and none of us know exactly how this is going to change the future going forward and uh, we want to make sure that our children are going to be ready to go back into school at some point and um, whenever that's safe to do so. Yeah uh-huh. so I mean you were
0: mentioning there just the the, the number of pupils that you've got in five. you know so can you just sort of seen for us a little bit there as well you know just with the number of schools that you have in, in five and and just you know try and maybe get across what's the scale of the challenge that you've been facing because you make a good point i suppose that usually if there's a crisis it's happening in one school at a time whereas this has been you know sort of every school you know sort of across well across the whole of the across the whole of scotland the whole of the uk but also, you know, from your perspective across the whole of your authority. So can you just, you know, sort of come up and paint the picture for us of what kind of a challenge that is?
1: Yeah, so we all have over 160 Schools, um, Obviously, primary schools, secondary schools, special schools and early years provision. So it's a big estate, if you like, to be thinking about in that way. Um, We had to make decisions about do we keep all of our schools open? Um, We then worried about would we have enough facilities management people to support that? We wanted to make sure if we set something up, we weren't then moving it again. So we had to look geographically across Fife because we're like a mini Scotland in Fife, really. Um, We've got rural parts and urban parts. we needed to think what was going to work in each of the areas so we we split it up into um, 11 geographical areas and we've got 29 children's activity centres running and we've chosen to call them children's activity centres because we want them to be a place that children want to come that they want to be engaged in having fun and and learning Um, so we have two special schools within that as well so that we can make um, provision for some of our more vulnerable young people who have disabilities that need quite a lot of support. And we have obviously large numbers of staff at the current time who volunteered to support in these centres. And I have to say that I'm you know, extremely grateful to them and um, for the effort that they've put in to make the set- centres be set up so that they are welcoming. Because it's not like just coming into school. You can't just leave it like that. Obviously, we're having to think about social distancing. We're having to think about different age groups together. We're having to think about children who've never seen each other before. Um, we're having to think about how... We make sure that there is appropriate learning for them, but it doesn't feel like they're constantly being pushed to learn, that they can have fun because our centres are open between 8 o'clock and 6 o'clock, and therefore that's much longer than a school day. So there's lots of things to think about. Like Sometimes people think, well, that's fine, you've got a building, you can take a few children, put a few staff in there, and it just all goes swimmingly. Um, but there's a lot more thought, a lot more effort, a lot more energy that needs to go into that. And people like our active schools coordinators have been putting together programmes to keep our our young people fit and active so that it's not contact sport, but there are things that they can do and they've been going into our centres to help with some of that too. Um, we have 564 children currently that are registered, that their parents have registered them to use our facilities. But we don't have that number yet who are actually using them. And what we are finding is that parents are choosing to maybe use the setting for a couple of sessions a week, that they're not necessarily using it for five days. So they're finding other ways to do sometimes it's split shifts for a a husband and a wife or a, a, two partners, that they're splitting their so that they can have the children at home as well. So I think people are genuinely trying to keep the numbers down um, and make sure that we can keep everybody safe by having smaller numbers in our children's activity centres going
0: forward. The social distancing, I can't even imagine how you make that work, with, especially with young children. That must be so difficult. What kind of advice do you give to... To, to the, you know, the teachers and the active schools coordinators that are staff in those centres to try and make that work.
1: So we've been working really closely with public health in Fife and they've been extremely helpful and given us lots of guidance and support, things that um, you can do or you can't do. And sometimes saying, well, this is what you need to try to do. But if you've got a three-year-old and a four-year-old, as we have in our settings, it is extremely challenging to say you've got to stay two metres apart. Um, So, you know, we know that children are not able to do that readily. So people are finding different games, different opportunities, different ways of playing things. And it's amazing how you can retrain children um, so if you give them a bit of fun and a bit of a game, then they can manage to do that. They'll forget quite quickly, um, but we are trying as far as possible to keep them from having no, no contact. I think the two metre distance is um, it's not something that we would be managing to do with three and four year olds. But there's lots of guidance out there for the centres and uh, teachers and early years officers and our people support assistants are hugely creative. They're brilliant people who know just exactly what children need and that's what they'll be doing at this point in time. You were talking about, you know, sort of this issue was
0: being able to, you know, if you had kept all of the schools open, um, you know, for, for the kids in their catchments that say were the children of key workers or who were classed as being vulnerable pupils, part of the problem is that would have been having the facilities people in order to run those. And, and were you finding that towards the end, just before they closed the schools, how were things going in Fife just in terms of, you know, staffing numbers and people having to begin to self-isolate? Were you starting to struggle at that point with, you know, sort of teacher teacher absence and we were having to self-isolate and things like that? What was, was the pressure starting to build? Were you relieved in one sense when they said that the schools would close just because that was getting tricky? Can you sort of tell me a bit about
1: that? Yeah, I think it was obviously, it was a bit mixed because we were, we know that if we've got our children in the schools, that we've got our eyes and ears on them and we can keep them safer in, in that respect when it's easier. Um, it doesn't mean we can't do it now, it just means it's more complex. So we were starting to see uh, quite a significant reduction in attendance. Um, of staff that it had gone down to I think about eighty five percent in some places, so there were pockets where that was happening, and obviously the longer as time had gone on, then that was going to increase significantly in terms of the absence rate. So. For us, it was certainly um, thinking about how do we keep things going? And we knew that the government were making decisions with all of the evidence and advice that they have. Um, everybody becomes an expert in this kind of situation, and it's amazing how everybody thinks that, you know, you've either done the wrong thing with uh, making that decision or the wrong thing with the, at the completely other end of the scale. But actually, we've got to trust that people are taking advice from those that know the scientists, the health professionals. and um, That's the advice that we're going on so on. When we were asked to close the schools, we there was no, you know, no concern at all about that. That we knew that that was from following advice and that that's what we needed to do. Yeah, and there's been a little bit recently just about, um, you know,
0: this issue of, of, you know, we've heard of the personal protective equipment for, um, you know, sort of in the health service. There's been a little bit about that talked about, you know, sort of teachers and the other staff that are staffing, you know, like the children's activity centres and five. I mean, is that anything that you've looked into, or do you think that may become a little bit further down the line, or you know, that actually having—I don't know—I suppose the you know, face masks and these kinds of things, or, or or does that change the the environment? Do you think that that's maybe quite difficult for the children who
1: actually would be attending, um, you know, to see that? Or so the current public health advice in Scotland is obviously saying that we don't need. To full protective equipment when we're working in these settings and that the full protective equipment is for people that are dealing with those who are suffering um, from the coronavirus. Um, What we have done is, again, we've taken advice from public health and we've made sure that we've got resources available in our settings for people when they need them, particularly in the settings for children with additional support needs where it may be that they're having to change children or be much closer to children um, than staff would be otherwise. But we're, we're keeping a watch and brief on all of the information and advice that comes out. And we change our guidance to our settings to let them know um, whenever there's something that we would ask them to change. And I know that there's been something in the news today about looking at that again. So we'll certainly be looking at that. And um, We want to keep our children and young people safe, but we also want to keep our staff safe. That's absolutely pr- crucial to us and we'll do whatever we can to make sure that happens.
0: And when you I know that we're only in week two or coming towards the end of week two. It's Thursday now, the second week of the closures. When you look back over this page, what are some of the standout moments for you? What were the, you know, where, where uh, you know, where they really, you know, sort of uh, stick in your mind?
1: Yeah, it feels a lot longer than two weeks that we've to be said. <laughs> I can't believe it's only two weeks. It's three weeks if you count the first week when we weren't sure what was happening. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, we. When you have a crisis like this, then you see people really coming to the fore. You know, we've had a a secondary head teacher who was offering to go in and do some juggling for the younger children to entertain them. Um, We've had early years officers and teachers that would never normally put themselves in front of a camera, that they're out there singing and playing their piano, reading online and encouraging people to uh, come in and listen to them. We had a head teacher who wrote a poem and read that on, on Twitter, um, which created quite, quite a lot of interest. And I think that, you know, people are just doing whatever they can to keep those connections. We know that those physical connections can't happen, but we can have connections in other ways. And I think we've seen people really going above and beyond to try to make sure that they can do that wherever they can. I had an early years officer who emailed me this week as well just to say that she had heard from a friend that the residential homes were struggling to um, know what to do with the children when they were there all day, every day, and they weren't at school, and that she was concerned about um, giving them information. So she'd been giving them packs. And to help them, but she was asking for my permission, could she go into the actual uh, residential home to help? Um, we're, at the moment, we're setting up our volunteering and our mobilisation of the workforce, so that hasn't kicked in yet. Um, so I said to her, absolutely, and I put her in touch with the people that she could go in and, and, and set that up. So, you know, people are going out of their way to say, you know, look, I've got skills, I've got expertise with children, what can I do to help? So um, there's too many of those stories to, to make, um, you know, I suppose to, to pay my as, as respect to all of them. But I think that, you know, there are just so many people out there trying creatively and innovatively to keep those connections going.
0: Yeah, and what, what was the biggest, you know, sort of, for you personally, what was the biggest push? The biggest rush? You know, like the biggest. What was the biggest piece of work that you had to get done? You know, in order to make all of this work. You know, like what? What were your some of your you know kind of top priorities? And and did did you think that they were achievable? You know, and can you can you believe that you managed it now?
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose the biggest challenge for us probably was the over the the period where we just heard on the Friday that the schools were not not on the Thursday, that the schools weren't then going to open the next week. Um, So we had to think about how would we get free school meals to our children? How would we allow them to finish things for their exams? Um, How would we make sure that our vulnerable children had processes in place to support them? And how would we make sure we had provision for the key workers? So those four areas, um, within a few days, we knew we had to have up and running. So uh, within in fact within two days we had all of that up and running and that was really just down to the absolute efforts that everybody put in uh, to make sure that it did. And you know we can look back and think maybe would we have done it differently another time and I'm sure there are lots of aspects that we would think that we might, but we got there and we did that we had the provision ready. Um, key workers children were able to be looked after, vulnerable children processes were in place. Um, we opted to do um, direct payments for our free meals so that we weren't bringing the children out of their homes for free meals. Um, and all of that was in place by, by the Wednesday. So I think that, you know, we did a pretty good job in um, mobilising our efforts to make that happen.
0: And so it's, so it's the direct payments into bank accounts that you've gone for. So so what do families receive instead of a free school meal now in Fife?
1: So they receive the value of the free school meal. So what, what other people would have paid for a meal, they'll, they'll get that. Um, and we're paying them fortnightly, I think. Um, we're paying them fortnightly and we are going to pay that over the Easter holiday period as well. So we're, we're looking at whether there are, there are other options. Some local authorities have gone for food vouchers. We were concerned in Fife with a food voucher because we don't have the same supermarkets across the whole of Fife. And, you know, how would we get things that were allowing people to access food? It's not like in a big city where you know that there's a supermarket just round the corner. So we wanted to make sure that the families would receive that and then they would be able to access the food wherever they were. So for us at the moment, that seems like the best option.
0: And it sounded from what you said before, like the in terms of, you know, the children who are still in school, the vulnerable, the vulnerable children, and the children of the um, key workers—that you're round about that. Nicholas Sturgeon's talked about there being about one percent of pupils um, still being in school. Is that what you're sitting
1: around at the moment? I'd say we have about 1% registered, but they're not all accessing yet. And I think that probably some parents, because we're not at the height of this crisis at the moment in terms of the health service workers. So I think probably what a lot of people are doing is taking holidays, taking days now that they can manage some of that. Um, And as I say, we're finding that children are not coming in for five days, that their parents are maybe asking if they can come in for two days or three days. So, um, so the numbers are, are much lower now, but I think that they definitely will rise. And as I say, we've got 563 registered, so we know that that's the, that's the ask of us out there. And we've been working closely with our local businesses as well through our economic development team in Fife. Um, and we've got agreement with the local businesses that feel that they are um, key workers and we've agreed with them that they are. And, but again, they've tried to manage their shift patterns. So if there are two key workers that work in that business, then they'll manage to the shift patterns to try and help them do a bit of childcare as well as maybe needing access to the children's activity centres for a bit of time. So by working together, I think we managed to keep the numbers fairly low, but give people what they need, because it's not about the numbers that are in the centres for me that's important. What's important is that we're meeting the need of the key workers to have their children cared for. Yeah. Uh
0: huh. Um, And I mean, obviously, there's just been this this tremendous amount of organisation. Are you? I don't know if you've had a chance to sort of raise your head up enough (laughs) to, to you know, and and had that kind of headspace yet to think about it. But do you think that out of this there will be positives for for schools and teachers and parents that? That will, that, will come, that will come out of it because we've been forced into this situation. Um, what do you think that some of the positives might be?
1: I think one of the positives is going to be that the technology to do all of the things that we're now doing this week has been around for a long time, but we've been too busy meeting each other, doing things face to face that we haven't used the technology so I mean, what I'm seeing happening um, in terms of lessons for our young people, there are really good things we can build on there in terms of making sure that we continue with that going forward. And also about thinking about how we operate as officers in a council. You know, We don't need to go to meetings. But there's lots of ways that we can do things differently. I've had I think, four different meetings today, um, all using either Teams or Zoom, um, which have been really productive and we've got things done. So I think in that way, the use of technology, is going to change um, definitely. And I think it's enhancing the skill set of our staff. When I'm seeing what some of the staff are doing and then I'm seeing what some of the, the children and young people are doing. One of our youngsters posted on Twitter yesterday a video that they had made themselves about what they were doing to keep healthy in their routines and keep learning and it was like a professional video it was amazing um and similarly with some of our schools you know we had a head teacher who was on with his puppet and uh, they've set up their own television said columbus television and uh, and they, their kids can tune into that so you know we've seen some of these things that Okay, they might happen in small ways in schools, but they're happening in every school almost now. So I think those will be long-lasting, uh, I suppose, benefits that will come out of a, a crisis at the moment.
0: When we use technology in that way, and when you know you create something like St. Columbus TV, what, what do you what what does that bring? You know, what benefit do you think that that brings? You know, like, you know, why would it be good to try and keep that sort of thing going? You know, like, what could we gain?
1: So I think at the moment it's good because our children can see that we can have those connections. Going forward, I think it's good because it can it can show a different way to learn. It can show that we don't have to write things down. It doesn't have to be in a jotter. It doesn't have to be on a screen. It can be something that's actually you're physically watching. Um, it just shows all the different mediums that our young people can use because they learn that way just now anyway. They, they're far ahead often um, in terms of where teacher skill sets are when it comes to things like that. So I think that that will be an embedded part of our pedagogy going forward much more than it currently is.
0: Yeah. And I, I even think that those relationships between, you know, I didn't have the email, for instance, on a personal level, I didn't have the email address of my children's teachers. You know, it just wasn't, it just wasn't something that I ever had. And I, I do now. I mean, and I guess there's probably good reasons for it not being a good idea for the parents' email address because we're all we're on a steep learning curve to understand just exactly how complicated and time-consuming that job is. And we're only trying to educate, you know, two or three children in our own houses, you know. So I guess there's that appreciation from parents about, you know, sort of, do you think that parents will come out of it appreciating their teachers more also, having a better connection with teachers because of that communication that you've got going about your child. Because I mean, I suppose in some places it still is that you you, you see your your parents' evening, and,
1: and that's pretty much that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's different ways of communicating, isn't it? And you're right that people are often conscious about um, creating or or taking down the barrier between the professionalism and the personal aspects. Um, but we know that children look at their teachers not just as a professional but as a person and that you know we can have ways where people could communicate through an email address or whatever that is still protecting their personal part of of their existence if you like because um, it is important to make those connections to keep those connections going and parents need that Support, need that access route into our schools. And I think that these are quite positive approaches. And I think you're right, Um, a lot of people will start to maybe appreciate what it is like to be a teacher. Um, it's not always the easiest thing to get children to learn and to keep them motivated and keep them enthused. And I'm sure that for the first week or maybe even the first two weeks, lots of parents will be thinking, oh, this is easy, this is great. But as it gets into week five, week six... You're saying this is going to get harder, (laughs) Carrie. You're killing me. (laughs) I think that people will just find that they're needing a bit of support from the school because they'll need to know what, what they need to do next. Um, to keep their children learning but, but yeah I, I think some of those things will never go back to the way they were I don't think that's necessarily a bad
0: thing yeah and what would some of your tips be for parents you know sort of just in terms of you know sort of basic things that you think actually maybe hold the key to success <laughs> in terms of getting kids to focus or concentrate or you know to, to be engaged in what, what you're, you're trying to sort of get across
1: So all children are different. And I suppose that's one of the things that to give the same advice for every child isn't going to work. Um, If you have a child who finds it incredibly difficult to sit still, don't make them sit still. Get them to do active things, get them to run around the house, get them to go in the garden, get them to find things, pick up things, write things in different places in the house if you have a child that likes to concentrate that likes to sit down and likes to have that kind of routine then that's what you need to do for them i think every child needs that security so they need a routine to know that this is when you're going to do some work whatever that work looks like and as a parent you'll know what works for your child um, and what you've been given from the school to, 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 to take part in but for every child it is different and in a class of 33 as a teacher that's what you that's what makes a good teacher Is somebody who's looking out for what is it that motivates that particular child? What is it that enthuses that child? What is it that makes it fun for that child? And as a parent, actually, you're closer to your child in that way. So you'll probably know a lot more of that. Um, And I think we'll see some really good learning coming out of this period of time. And we'll see that our children are still progressing with their learning. I'm not saying that that means that we shouldn't have schools, by the way, but um, I do think that people will put an effort into this that they wouldn't otherwise have done. And a lot of people are working at home. They don't have a job to go to as such. They might be doing bits of work at home. So they've got more time to spend with their children. And for the vast majority of our families, that will be a positive experience. And part of our job is to look out for those families where that's unfortunately not such a positive experience and making sure that we're supporting them to be able to have a safe time when they're at home. uh, That
0: must be a very difficult task just now because I suppose you'll have your kids who are still coming into school and as you sort of put it earlier, you have your eyes and your ears on them. And so, you know, that's continuing and and so you can feel, I, I suppose, a bit more, you know, kind of confident. There presumably will be a group of children who aren't you know sort of meeting that sort of threshold to be classed as a, a vulnerable child who gets to come into school but who also for whom this is potentially going to be you know not such not such an easy period and how is it that you know, because you're head of education and children's services aren't you so how how, how are how are you as an authority um grappling with with those issues just now I was talking to Seamus Sears in the general secretary of the Scottish secondary teachers association and he was talking about you know um, the need to look out for the kids who just aren't engaging at all with the online learning and who are they and what's what's happening in their lives that means that they're not and he said there could be good reasons you know they could be the carers for younger siblings it could be all sorts of things you know but, um, you know, but, but, but that that needs to sort of look out for them. So that that is, is, is one thing to say it. I guess it's another thing to do it. How how do you do that? Or is that something that you're kind of getting to grips with now?
1: I think it's something that we're good at in children's services in general. So in education, in CLD, in social work, that we're good at having our eyes and ears on children. But you're right, um, the difficulty is that things are behind closed doors at the current time. So it's really important that every teacher is still taking an interest and a responsibility for the education of the children that they're responsible for. And in that way, our processes and our systems are still there to support our children. So we still have our child protection coordinators. We'll still be having well-being meetings. wellbeing meetings we will still be making sure that we have um, contact with the police, that we're working with a team around a child albeit virtually, and not having our eyes and ears in the normal sense um, on those children. But it is important that we do that. We're working really closely with our social work teams. Um, obviously, as you say, because I'm a, a director of education and children's services, then social work is my responsibility too. And um, We're making sure that we're looking at the children through social work and an education lens at the same time. So we have a system in place to say which children are we really concerned about and they're not being seen by social work or they're not being seen by education. And in that way, I mean virtually seen, it might be, or in our children's activity centres or in the children's homes if the social work teams are visiting. So we're looking to build that profile and we've prioritised our kids into four um, priorities and we're working through those um, over the next week or so to make sure that we've got something in place that gives us an eye and an ear into the lives of those children that we are more concerned about than perhaps some of the others. So that that is really important. And I suppose the last thing I would say on that is that there's a community responsibility here, that we need to make sure that we're encouraging all of our communities to be listening out for things that are going on behind closed doors, that they can be our eyes and ears for us, because we we need to know if there are things that are happening that are not right. Um, and there are some families who will be absolutely struggling at this point in time. And sometimes they don't like to, to, to admit to that. So we need neighbours, we need people in communities to help us, to alert us if there are situations that they're concerned about that we can help. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, We know that we've had the um,
0: expansion of the funded nursery hours, um, that that's that's been put on hold. Um, Well, I suppose, first of all, what was your reaction to that? Was that the right thing to do?
1: Yeah, I've been having a number of discussions with the government over the last um, few weeks, as you would imagine, as president of ADES, but um, myself and a, a number of um, ADES members and officers have been involved in some of these discussions um, to give our advice and our support around uh, what we feel, uh, from our professional uh, standing, is the right thing to do. So in this particular 140 hour delay decision, then absolutely I think that it was the right thing. Um, I think that the buildings are not completed and that without that capacity, there's no way that we can deliver 1140, um, certainly in Fife and across Scotland, in absolutely every setting. Uh, We just don't have the physical capacity. That's why we had to build the buildings. So if the buildings had been there, then the chances are that we might have been able to actually do some of the other aspects that are still quite tricky. A whole managing change exercise that we're undertaking in Fife at the moment. We're also just about to appoint another 120 early years officers. Um, We're going to have to find different ways of doing those interviews because we can't bring people in. So there are other complexities around that. the buildings element was the one for me that really um, made us understand that it just wasn't possible to continue with the the delivery on a a statutory basis. I think almost all local authorities are already thinking about how they're phasing in 1140 hours. So 1140 hours has been available in a number of settings over this year and some last year. Um, And this will be another year for us to be able to increase the phasing um, until we're given a final date, then when we need to have everything in place for. So yes, I think it was the right decision. It will be disappointing for the number of parents I'm sure who are planning their their work and their childcare around that. Um, but I think a lot of things are going to be different in the world beyond uh, COVID-19, uh, not just about the 11:40. And that's
0: just going to be yeah, that's just going to be one of them. Um, yeah, because basically the plans a lot of local authorities had was that they would do their building in the summer holidays. Wasn't it, is it? Am I right in saying that? And then they would be ready. Well, I mean, I know that lots of the authorities had 1140 hours in place already. Um, you know, in, in many of their settings. But for the you know, but for the remainder and where they were needing to build, quite a lot of that work was going to be going on over the summer and so it, it's really just real, that realisation that it's, it's unlikely that that work will be complete.
1: Was that yeah, the case
0: with like, Fife? Was there, were, there project, were there big projects that you were due to
1: be undertaking? Yeah so we had projects that started in January so it's not that they would have been happening in the summer only but they've been happening since January but okay. they needed that length of time to be able to be finished. Um, and we do have quite a number of projects that were extensions or refurbishments of, of buildings that we currently have, and they would have been being done in the summer holiday period. So, so it's a combination of those two things that means that there will be a number of facilities that won't be ready um, for us in August 2020.
0: Yeah. And you were saying there about the recruitment of the early years officers and, you know, and, and, and that's about, you know, sort of having the staff to deliver the additional hours. And I had wanted to ask you just about um, teacher recruitment. When When is usually your busiest period for recruiting teachers?
1: So it's just coming up now. <laughs> uh, this is the time where we would start to be uh, looking at what our vacancies were and the probationers that would be coming in for next year and about the... Um, the way that we were going to fill posts across our schools, both in secondary and primary. So we've undertaken that exercise and we are continuing to look at what we will need to be interviewing for. Again, we'll need to do those interviews in quite a different way, whether it's on Zoom or Skype. Um, we're going to have to do them differently. But we, in order for us to keep running, to keep our businesses operational, if we can think about schools as businesses, then we need to have things in place for after the summer. We can't just press pause and then wait and start everything up again. So we've kind of pressed pause, I suppose, in the last couple of weeks whilst we got things safe for our children. um, Now we're in a a phase where we need to be thinking ahead. What do we need to do next term that allows us to then be able to pick up and deliver, hopefully, um, after the summer? And for you, uh, you know...
0: how many teachers would you be talking about or do you not know that yet or or do you know from past experience you know sort of how many interviews you're talking about having to conduct and how difficult that would be because I presume that it's not just one person who sits on the interview panel so you're talking about getting a few people together uh, remotely um, who'll be able to you know sort of carry out those interviews.
1: Yeah, so we usually have 50, 60 plus. It depends obviously just on movement. Um, but we would be looking to have panels in the same way. We always have panels that do our interviews so those panels of head teachers. Um, and we would be looking to set something up. Not quite sure what it's going to look like yet, um, but we are hoping to have some kind of panels that would do a similar interview, but obviously it would be a virtual interview. And um, we'll obviously have other information about the candidates, so we would have, um, you know, their application form, the information that they're telling us, and so we've got other things to, to base um, the interview and the appointment process on. But we would certainly be going ahead with that, and making sure that we can, and for so for the teachers as well that they, some of these probationers who've just come out or just about to finish, they're going to be looking for a permanent job. This is their career. So we don't, again, we don't want to pause that. We want to make sure that we keep that moving forward.
0: And, you know, what what's the situation for the probationers who, uh, you know, have had their, have essentially had their probation cut short? Um, they're just going to be recruited in the usual way, are they, And uh, into schools? That they'll, they'll just gain their, their full registration?
1: So they, they have a set number of days that they have to have been working with their classes. Obviously they'll not have done the possibly full class commitment, that sort of thing. Um and so some of them may have to do some extra days after the summer holidays. If they've had an absence, for example, it might be if they had a I significant see. absence before then, then there'd be something they need to do. But generally, at the point that we stopped, they have nearly got to that point where they'd done the number of days that they needed. Um, so those that were maybe struggling and needed a bit of extra help, or those, as I say, that have missed some days, may well need to do a little bit more um, after the summer. But my understanding at the moment, and obviously it's a GTC decision, is that they would be um, able to be fully registered for next session, the majority of them. And, and, and as an education
0: director, how do you feel about that? Is that is that the right thing to do? Or do you have any concerns that they won't have had the the, the, the full whack of experience that that, that, that they need? Um...
1: I think it's a, it's a difficult question because obviously we would want them to have as much quality experience as a probationer before they stepped into taking on that teacher's role which is a difficult and challenging role however we're in a situation which is an emergency a crisis and things have to adapt accordingly Um, when I was a probationer many many years ago you didn't get any extra support you didn't get a mentor you didn't get all the training that you get now And I still think I managed to be a pretty decent teacher. So I think that we'll have a lot of people out there that will go above and beyond and we'll support them next year. um, And the the years to come, we'll be supporting these teachers. What we don't want is them to be thinking about, you know, they're the probationer of 2020 um, that gets a raw deal. So in the same way as we want our children in the classes of 2020 to get a good deal, we would want our probationers to get a good deal as well.
0: And as we were talking there about the expansion of the funded hours and that being put on hold, is there anything else like that that councils could, you know, sort of do with happening, you know, big projects um, that are underway, that putting them on pause would be really useful? Um, Are there any, you know, are there any bits of the jigsaw that are, you know, kind of still still missing in, in that respect?
1: We're working our way through what the term four consequences will be at the moment. So the thinking of the things that we would have to be doing in term four. So, for example, placing requests and placing request appeals. So there are a number of areas of work that would happen in an education authority over the next term. And we are in the process in ADES at the moment of working our way through those. Um, and seeing if there are some that we perhaps need to ask for a bit more guidance from the government or we need the government to look at whether or not they can make any changes at this point in time.
0: So just just so that people understand, so placing requests, that's to do with where a family wants their child to attend a school, but it's not their catchment school, um, it's not their local school, and so you, know, you can put in a placing request and, and then the local authority decides whether or not your child will get a place in that school. So... Uh, what kind of impact are those sorts of things having on councils just now? Is it just very so difficult the, to make those decisions at the moment?
1: Yeah, so the placing requests in themselves for most local authorities are probably okay to deal with. It's more the appeal to the placing request as to how you actually hold the appeal in the way that it's currently set up on a statutory basis. So um, looking at whether or not there is something that we could change around that that, that would make that easier to happen. Um, some local authorities don't have large numbers of placing requests or large numbers of appeals. Um, some of them in the more urban areas where obviously schools are very close together, then you tend to have large numbers of placing requests and large numbers of appeals. And that's where the difficulties um, would start to arise.
0: And is that just
1: about bringing the people together
0: the, who, who, need to, who need to come together to hear the appeal? Is that the complication? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's brilliant. Um, and I mean, I just uh, I just wondered as well about the um, SQA, the Scottish Qualifications Authority, and if there was any more information the um, directors are looking for from the SQA. I mean, we know we know a few bits and pieces now. We know that the coursework is is not going to be um, counting this this year. In terms of, its, you know, in, in, as far as the SQA is concerned, I suppose that teachers might use the coursework as something that they base their estimates on of the grade um, that they think that their that their pupils, you know, should, should get. Do we, how is all of that going to work? How how do you sort of see it working? So I believe
1: that the SQA have got some information coming out. This week, so we're nearly at the end of the week, so I would imagine by today or tomorrow, um, to start us thinking about those estimates and how we're going to actually calibrate those estimates. Um, We have colleagues in ADES who've been working with the SQA to work through what that could look like. Um, And remember, in the past, we've had teachers judgments, teachers' assessments were what the, the, the exam results were built on before it became much more, um, I suppose, automised and electronic uh, so that we you know, we have systems from the past that we can resurrect, that can help us to do this. What we need to make sure is that we've got a system across Scotland um, that is going to be robust and that is going to be fair for this class of 2020 to make sure that they don't get a raw deal, but also that they don't get overly advantaged. Um, because of it being a slightly different system brought in at this point. So so we're working with the SQE to make sure um, that we can do the best we possibly can for the class of 2020. What kind of system do you envisage? (laughs) So there are all sorts of things that we can do. We can look at how um, their projected grades. We can look at their prelims that they've had. We can look at the coursework. We can look at how... Um, schools and departments have previously done from between the prelims and the exams, so we can start to look at some of that data. So it can allow us to kind of calibrate and make sure that people are not overestimating or underestimating. So there's a there's a lot of work to be done around this, and both from a local authority level, a school level, and a teacher level. Um, so it's a big piece of work that we need to do. But once we've got um, that, you know, the, further information from the SQA, then we're we're in a position, I think, probably across Scotland where we can then get get going with that um, and and get things right for the class of 2020. And is is Ades happy with the pace of that?
0: You know, there's been quite a a lot of um, comment, you know, sort of on Twitter about that there should have been more information coming out um, faster from the SQA. What's your own take on that?
1: The ADS colleagues who are working with the SQA at the moment certainly fed back to me this morning to say that they were comfortable with the information that was going to be coming out and that they felt that we could work on that then um, as time goes on over the next couple of weeks.
0: Okay, okay. Um, And so... What's keeping you awake at night now? <laughs> what, what, are you, what um what are the sort of what are the big issues going forward? You've got your activities centers set up, you've got your free school meals sorted, you've got your kids um categorized, your vulnerable you think, you think your vulnerable children are, and you've prioritized them uh, so that you can sort of have these eyes and ears on them even when the schools are closed. So <laughs> is is there anything keeping you awake at night now or are you just so exhausted that you, you just fall asleep as soon as your head hits the pool?
1: Yeah, I've never been somebody who's um, suffered too much from not being able to sleep. But the two things probably that, that would keep me awake at the moment, one would be thinking about that family who maybe have quite large numbers of children in their family, who maybe live in a flat, who don't have a garden, who've not got access to a lot of of the facilities that some other families might. And just what is it going to be like for weeks and weeks on end to be in that environment, to not have enough food, to not feel that you're um, really progressing with your life, that you're stuck almost. And I think it's important that that we, we look out for them. And that's why I do ask for communities to help us with that, as well as us having our eyes and ears on them. And I think the other thing, probably, that would keep me awake would be just thinking about how do we transition all of these children. So, for me, my fifty-three thousand children, how do I transition them back into a school learning environment when they basically will have been out of education for a number of months? Um, and it's not one or two children transitioning back in, which is normally what we'd have with some children who may be sick or going away to another country for a few months. This is talking about a whole cohort of 53,000 children who haven't been in school for months at a time. And how do we make sure that we pick up on their prior learning um, to allow them to continue with their learning at the pace that we think is acceptable? So, so that, that that does keep me awake a bit. Um, we're thinking hard. I'm trying to think ahead. I'm trying to think strategically about what do we need to put in place now to make sure that we've got things that are going to work for that after the summer.
0: And what do you think some of the answers might be to that? What are some of the solutions that are buzzing around in your head just now?
1: So I think we need to think about different things for different groups, for different cohorts. So our vulnerable children are perhaps going to need something a bit more. So we might need to think about over the summer holidays, something that we can do for them. Um, I think we need to think about where we're saying the children are at in their learning when we're passing that class on to another class so we need to do a piece of work around how are we assessing just where they're at is it where they were at when the school's closed I think not because there's a lot of learning going to be going on but not only the learning that they've been given by their teachers but there'll be other learning that's going on with these young people so How are we going to capture that? What is it that we're going to do to capture that? And I'll be using the expertise in my school system to help me with that. It's not something that I'm going to be coming up with the answers for. This is unique. This is different. This is nothing that we've ever, ever experienced before. So we need to help each other to find the ways through it um, that will allow our children to go on learning after the summer. And just finally, Carrie, because I know that you've got a a job to do, (laughs) Um,
0: there's been a radio station that's been asking people to complete um, the following sentence. When this is all over, I will. How would you finish that sentence? I think for
1: me, when this is all over, I'm going to
0: give my mum a big hug. <laughs> oh, where's your mum just now? Does she stay in five two? Is she in the same town as you or...?
1: No, she stays in Fruhi in a little village in Fife. Um, so she's about forty-five minutes away from me. Um, so she's in the house on her own. Oh, and is she?
0: Is she? She's over seventy. So are, are you not able to see her at all just now?
1: Yeah, she she was eighty-seven on Monday. Um, and when I phoned her last night, or she phoned me last night, she said that she was phoning me so that I didn't phone her at seven o'clock because she was taking part in a Zoom call. Um, with a group of friends. So my mum is amazing. Uh, she She's doing absolutely brilliantly. She's Skyping, she's Zooming, and um, she's forgetting that she can't go out sometimes. So I have to keep reminding her she can't go to the things she used to go to. Um, We lost my dad in January this year, unfortunately. So this has been a a big change for my mum. 63 years they've been married and together all that time, obviously, in their house together. And now she's there on her own, uh, dealing with grief, but dealing with it absolutely brilliantly.
0: Yeah well, she's obviously the kind of person that's got the, the 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 skills and tools that she needs to cope with during this time so yeah I, but i can see why you want to get your hands on her <laughs> That's brilliant thank you so much Carrie for your time i really appreciate that thanks for taking yeah. part in the TS Scotland podcast